Join us on demand at the Bloomberg Asia Wealth Summit on August 4th to hear from leading investors, economists, and money managers as they bring actionable intelligence to private investors and family offices. At this event, we'll unravel the complexity and unearth where the opportunities for wealth creation lie. Founding sponsor, HSBC. Register now to watch on demand at BloombergLive.com slash AsiaWealth slash radio. That's BloombergLive.com slash AsiaWealth slash radio. Hi there, and welcome back to Out of Office. I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. My guest today wanted to retire at the age of 35. He didn't quite get his way. It happened when he was 37. That's when he made his first million. Well, I remember one day, my partner, we were talking about something, and he looked up and said, oh, and by the way, today you are a millionaire. I was <laughs> stunned and shocked because I hadn't even been paying attention. That's why I went and tore the tore the sheet out of my desk calendar for the day I would get. I still have that desk calendar sheet. Jim Rogers, a renowned investor, author of several books on investing, world traveler and proud father, spoke to me from his home in Singapore. We spoke about his childhood. There were baseball games and the lady who sold Coca-Cola's, uh, you know, in those days you had to pay a deposit on your bottles. And so the people who drank the Coke bottles just threw them on the ground. And she paid me five cents for every 24 to go and collect the empty bottles and bring them back to her so that she could get her deposits. We spoke about his views on China. China's going to have many problems, as does every country that rises, as it does every family or every individual or every company. So, yeah, there are going to be lots of problems, but you should teach your children Mandarin. Being a father... I never wanted to have children, Malaga. I thought children were a horrible, useless waste of time and energy and money. <laughs> I felt so sorry for my friends who had children. You've ruined your lives. What's wrong with you? Well, it turns out I was totally wrong. And his enduring investment advice. People should only invest in what they themselves know a lot about. If you want to be rich, you know what people say. They say that's boring. I said, okay, if you want to be successful, be boring. Be boring. That's how you're going to be successful. Here's Jim Rogers with all of that and much, much more on Out of Office. Jim, welcome to Out of Office. I am delighted to be here, Malika. I am a fan of yours and of Bloomberg's. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Jim, you made your first million before the age of 40, and you... Mm actually decided to retire then. Can you tell our global audience quickly how you made that first million? Well, Malaga, I, I grew up poor and I always used to say, who knew what I was talking about, that I wanted to retire when I was 35 so that I could have more than one life. Uh, I, I, we, there were two of us and we were having a lot of fun and we, were, we didn't consider it work. We were just having so much fun doing what we were doing. And we did a lot of things right. We made a lot of correct decisions. And the next thing you knew, we had a lot of money. And this is while you were at Quantum with George Soros? Yes, 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 yes. That's when I quote, quote you became a millionaire. <laughs> That's not why I did it. I did it because I loved what I was doing. We both did. But fortunately, if you did well at what we were doing, they paid you a lot of money. And remind me of the day when you actually found out that you were a millionaire. 
that moment? Well, I remember one day my partner, we were talking about something and he looked up and said, oh, and by the way, today you are a millionaire. I was <laughs> stunned and shocked because I hadn't even been paying attention. And so I went and tore the tore the sheet out of my desk calendar for the day. I would, and I still have that desk calendar sheet. Nobody has desk calendars anymore, but I have the sheet from back in the 70s. That's amazing. Now, you said you grew up poor. And I remember reading about how you really discovered your entrepreneurial spirit, or you knew you had it really young when you were five and you were collecting uh, bottles from a local baseball field. Is that right? Yes, uh, there were baseball games and the lady who sold Coca-Colas, uh, you know, in those days you had to pay a deposit on your bottles. And so the people who drank the Coke bottles just threw them on the ground and she paid me five cents for every 24 to go and collect the empty bottles and bring them back to her so that she could get her deposits. By the way, Malaga, I'm sure if we did this today, she would be in jail and I would be in jail too. I was five <laughs> years old. Yes, yes, you were five. Exactly, exactly. But that experience, you know, how do you think that influenced, well, your childhood well, I, I don't know that it did, but I do know that it was quite thrilling to get paid, uh, even though it was very little, um, by, certainly by today's standards. I do remember that one night I made so much money, a dollar and 15 cents, by the way, one US dollar and 15 cents. Mm -hmm. It was so much money for me that I went home and gave my little brother half of it because <laughs> I didn't know what to do with so much money. But I was very pleased every night when the lady would pay me, uh, and I liked it. So I guess that's started something in my poor brain. And where did you grow up? Was it Alabama? I grew up in the backwoods of Alabama, yes. This happened to be in the backwoods of Oklahoma, where I was visiting my grandparents. But I went home to the backwoods of Alabama and started my own business doing selling Coca-Colas and things. What was your childhood like in Alabama? Your parents, your family? Well, it was a small town, Malika. My phone number was five where I, where I grew up. That's really? my typo. That was, yeah, that's five. Five. One, two, three, four, five. That was <laughs> my phone number. And it was not a typo. As I say, it was a small town. Uh, and that's why when I went back, you know, I could start my own business. And I was selling Coca-Colas and peanuts at the baseball games and football games. Now, of course, this would not be allowed in, at all in 2022, but there mm -hmm. I was in this small, nobody cared, it was a small town. Mm -hmm. And so I was selling Coca-Colas and peanuts and I was hiring four-year-old boys to work <laughs> for me. And there we were, you know, we were successful. with no competition. <laughs> So when you did retire at the age of 37, you actually did retire. You just went on to do something very different. You got into a car and you traveled the world. Well, I had for many years, well, it's only 37, but for many years I had been saying, I want to go around the world on my motorcycle. I want to see the world. If you grew up in a phone number, in a town where your phone number is five, you probably want to see the world. So I wanted to see the world and 
that was what my plan was. I'm going to retire and go around the world on my motorcycle, and then we'll see what happens. Uh, so that was the plan. Uh, you may remember the Iron Curtain and Red China and things like that. Uh, yeah. So it wasn't so easy. It took me a few years to get permission, but then I finally got permission from the Soviets and the Chinese, and off I went. What's your favorite memory from that time? Well, from that time, my, my adventures on my motorcycle driving through Central Europe, driving through China. I mean, these were unknown places uh, to, to most of the world, certainly to a Western capitalist. Um, but there I was traveling through literally red China, literally Soviet Union, literally behind the Iron Curtain. Um, and there was nobody else. There were certainly no tourists driving through Red China, no tourists driving through the Soviet Union in those days. But I wanted to see the world and I wanted to find out. I know you expected to, to be surprised by everything that you saw and learned, and it was all a very new experience for you. Is there anything that stands out, any one country, or do you have any anecdote or any experience from this trip that really still stands out in your mind? Well, yes. Uh, when I first went to China, Red China, in 1984, I was terrified because I had been reading American propaganda all my life that the Chinese were evil, vicious, bloodthirsty, and dangerous people. So when I got off the plane, I was sure I was going to be shot. Uh, but it didn't take me long traveling around red China to find out, wait a minute, these are hardworking, ambitious, educated, disciplined, crazy people, crazy in a positive sense. Yeah. Uh, and I realized, and I would go back to New York and I would say to people, China, China is going to be the next great country in the world. And they would look at me very strange and say, what? Japan, 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 Japan. You're not old enough to remember those days, but we all thought that Japan was going to take over the world in the 80s. And I kept saying, no, China, China, China. And I guess that's the most vivid memory because I saw what was happening close to the ground and from the ground up. And I realized, oh my gosh, these people have thousands of years of history. They've been the most successful in the country, uh, in the world two or three times. And it's going to happen again. Uh, I realized that Great Britain had been great once. Rome had been great once. Egypt had been great once. But my gosh, China had been great three or four times. They had collapsed and had catastrophe three or four times. But they were the only country that after catastrophe, after a few decades or a few centuries, worked their way back to the top again. Nobody else has done it. And... I mean, all of this was, if you see the world close to the ground, Malaga, you learn a lot more than if you take a tour or watch the internet. Are you still as bullish about China as you were back then? Oh, yes. No, I, but, but let me be sure to clear, clarify that there are going to be problems. America became the most successful country in the 20th century, but along the way, we had many bankruptcies, civil war massacres in the streets. You could buy and sell Congress. Well, you can still buy and sell congressmen, but they were cheap back in those days. You could buy as many as you wanted. So no, America went through a lot of 
difficult and strange times as we rose to being very successful. China's gonna have many problems as does every country that rises, as it does every family or every individual or every company. So yeah, there are gonna be lots of problems, but you should teach your children Mandarin. Yes, my children actually do learn Mandarin because I just moved here from Hong Kong. And oh, well, yeah. So your girls, you have twin girls and they speak Mandarin, I believe. I had no idea, since I don't speak Mandarin, how good it is, but CCTV, the Chinese network, yeah. He's taken my girls to China three times and done specials about them because they say their Chinese is better than theirs. Now, I have no oh. idea because I don't speak Mandarin, but apparently it's been a brilliant, brilliant success, not because of me, but because of these two girls. How did you end up living in Singapore? You grew up in Alabama. Well, I lived in New York for many, many years. When, yeah. I went to, when I got out of college, I went to Wall Street. And Alabama doesn't have Wall Street. New York had Wall Street. Yeah. Uh, but then uh, we realized if we wanted these girls to really speak Mandarin, we were going to have to live in a Chinese-speaking city or it wouldn't work. So we looked at all the Chinese cities, but they were horribly polluted. So we wound up in Singapore. Singapore, everything works and they speak English and they speak Mandarin. How long have you been in Singapore? 2007, we came here permanently. Oh, right. So it's been, it's been a while. Now you've gone on to have a tremendous career giving people investment advice, you know, trying to explain them various options they have, you know, about how they can improve their wealth. And I know you're going to be speaking at a Bloomberg event on wealth, uh, the Bloomberg Wealth Asia Summit. I wanted to ask you, what does wealth mean to you? Well, you know, I have a lot of friends who are still on Wall Street, or many, I, I was for a guy named Roy Newberger, who's still there over 100 years old every day, having a wonderful time. And that was great. That's what they wanted to do, it's, but it's not what I wanted to do. Uh, I wanted to have more than one life and I wanted to have adventure. So my plan was to do that. And so I did stop working early so that I could have other lives and have adventure and see the world. I would have a lot more money, I, I think, I hope, I presume, had I continued to work, but I wanted to have more than one life. But who knows whether I did the right thing or not. Is that what wealth means to you is sort of wealthy experiences, being able to have adventures. For, for me, I, it wasn't the money, as I said before, it wasn't money so I could buy cars or planes or horses or something. It was to buy my freedom. I wanted to buy my freedom so I didn't have to be nice to people if I didn't want to be nice to them. It's a pretty, <laughs> simple, pretty simple goal in life. I'm a very simple person. If you're from place where your phone number's five, you're bound to be a simple person. And so I just wanted to buy my freedom. Uh, that's all it was. It was that simple. I say I would probably have a lot more had I continued to work, but that was not my goal. I had a pretty simple goal, and so far it has worked. After the break, Jim explains why he believes the key to success is being boring, and he talks about his relationship with his daughters, though he admits he wasn't sure he wanted to be a dad. We'll be right back. 
Join us on demand at the Bloomberg Asia Wealth Summit on August 4th to hear from leading investors, economists, and money managers as they bring actionable intelligence to private investors and family offices. At this event, we'll unravel the complexity and unearth where the opportunities for wealth creation lie. Founding sponsor, HSBC. Register now to watch on demand at BloombergLive.com slash AsiaWealth slash radio. That's BloombergLive.com slash AsiaWealth slash radio. And previously, you've said that your strategy or your investment advice has been to buy low and sell high. What should people buy now? Well, yes, that's very simple advice, isn't it? Unfortunately, it's not <laughs> so easy to do. I wish it were so easy to do. Uh, but I want to go just back when you asked about work. I tell people often that, you know, they say, what should I do, blah, and I'll say, Listen, it's very simple. Just figure out what you love, not what your teachers or parents or friends love, what you love, and do it. Even if people laugh, at, or especially if people laugh at you, do what you absolutely adore. That's what I did. They didn't have to pay me. I mean, I, I'm glad they paid me because I needed money to live and I wanted to find my freedom. But, you know, if you do what you love, you're never going to go to work and you know, wake up every day and have fun. And those are usually the people who are the most successful because they love what they're doing. And even if they're not successful, they don't care because they're happy. You know, they don't, they don't care if they have trillions of dollars. They're very happy to have happy lives. So for me, that's what, quote, work was, but I didn't consider it work. That's what I wanted to do. It's how I wanted to spend my time. And so I did. And since then, I hope that that's what I have been doing doing things that I'm very keen on. I drove around the world twice because I had this long-term delight, goal, whatever it is, to do that. So I did it. Um, I, I think I've been doing things that I wanted to do to have fun. And if other people do that, as I say, even if they're not successful, they're going to be, they don't care. They're <laughs> plenty happy and they're more likely to be successful than not. You're a father to two young girls, and you've written this amazing book. Um, it's called A Gift to My Children, and it's a father's, it's father's Lessons for Life and Investing. I'm just curious, is their attitude towards money and wealth and working very different from yours? Probably is, because uh, when I was, <laughs> when I was that age, I knew, I, I knew we didn't have any money, etc., and no matter how much I tell my girls, I mean, they can look out the window, they, can, they go to school and their classmates talk to them. You know, they see that we drive different cars from a lot of people and things like that. So no matter how much I tell them we're not rich, they don't, their friends tell them, no, you are rich. Uh, we're not as rich as many, many, many people I know, but at least we can pay the rent and we continue to. I'm trying to teach my girls that they must save money uh, because and eventually they will learn to invest it. Uh, I have not taught them about investments because I want them to come to me. I have learned if you try to teach somebody something and they're not interesting, it, it interested, it usually doesn't work. So, but when they were babies, we got them five or six piggy banks then I wanted them to know that every time you get money, it is to be saved. That's what you do with money. You don't go spend it. You get your money, you go put it in the piggy bank, 
And when the piggy bank's full, you go to the big bank and put it in the big bank and they learned about interest and things like that. So I am trying to teach them the value of money that it doesn't grow on trees. My older daughter, when she turned 14, I told her she had to get a job um, because everybody should have a job when you're a teenager. I assumed she would go to McDonald's or something and get a job making $8 an hour. <laughs> She's a lot smarter than I am now. She got a job teaching Chinese, making $30 an hour. Good and complaining her. and complaining because the grown-up teachers make $70 an hour. <laughs> and I said to her, you're 14 years old, for goodness sake, you better be happy. Stop complaining. So I, I think that the value of work is something we all need to learn early. The younger generation, though, do you think their approach or their ideas about investing are different? Are they focusing more on ESG, for example? What's the difference that you, you notice? Well, of course, ESG is different because there was no ESG when I was that age. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, things are different in many ways. <laughs> but, but a lot of this has been happening for hundreds of years. You know, whenever there's a long bull market, new people come into the market and they tell their friends, oh, I found this new thing called the stock market and it's fun and you can make money and it's easy. Oh, it's easy to make money. You know, this is not my first rodeo, Malik. I've seen this before. I know how this movie ends. Uh, some of these things have happened over and over again. SPACs. SPACs have been around for 300 years and SPACs come riding in again, often after a long bull market. So some of this, let's say it's not my first rodeo. We've seen, seen some of this movie before mm -hmm. uh, and people should only invest in what they themselves know a lot about. If you want to be rich, <laughs> don't listen to me. Don't listen. To, maybe you listen to Malcolm. Maybe you listen to Bloomberg. But for the most part, you don't listen to hot tips. You don't listen to other people. If you want to be successful, you just wait until you find something that you know you yourself know is going to be successful and do some research and, and invest. Oh, and, and then, by the way, send me an email. <laughs> I want to research it too. Yes. That's how you become successful. If I told you you could only have 20 investments in your life, you would be very careful. You wouldn't be jumping in and out all the time and you'd probably be successful. And you and know you, what, Mal, wait, wait, wait. You know what people say? They say that's boring. I say, okay, if you want to be successful, be boring. Be boring. That's how you're going to be successful. And that advice <laughs> is the same no matter what the market conditions are. We're all talking about a recession right now. And does your advice just stay the same? Invest in what you know? It may be boring, but if you want to be successful, that's what you do. If you listen to hot chips, you're not going to be successful. You're going to be talking about how horrible the stock market is and how it's unfair and they cheat you and nothing works and stay away from it. So... The choices are to be successful or not to be successful. You've done so many fascinating things in your life. You've traveled the world twice. You've written so many books. You've got this amazing reputation. You're on TV all the time. You're giving investment advice. I mean, you've, you've had an amazing career, an amazing life. And one of the things you've done was you taught at Columbia. And 
I was curious, you know, the students obviously were lucky to be in your class and to learn from you. What did you learn from that experience and from the students? Well, first of all, Malik, I, I'm flattered by what you say, but I want you to know I made many mistakes in my life, plenty of mistakes. Uh, I taught at Columbia because after I retired, one of the things I wanted to do while I was trying to go around the world was to learn to play squash and to learn to play tennis. Well, I lived near Columbia and I said to Columbia, what do I have to do? I mean, I'm not going to give them a dumb worm. You know, I wasn't going to go back to school or something. And they said, okay, you teach one class, one semester, and we'll make you a lifetime access to the Columbia gym. I said, okay, and I'll do it for free. But I didn't know. And then I said to them, you know, business school is a waste of time. I don't approve of business school. I wouldn't be a good teacher, blah, blah. Turns out I loved it. The kids loved it. And so they were smarter than I was. I kept teaching because <laughs> it was so much fun uh, so that I could play squash and play tennis. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, I learned from the students, uh, learned how much they didn't know for one thing. I also learned how much I didn't know for another. No, it was a very good experience, for, certainly for me. Would you think about teaching in Singapore? Is that an option? Uh, I have thought about it. I have not because it does take a lot of time, you know, to do it right. Even to do it wrong, it takes a lot of time. <laughs> but if you want to do it right, it takes a lot of time. And I, I had I had no children when I was teaching at Columbia, uh, etc. But then when I was here, I had these children, etc. And I had rather devote my time any time I have to my daughters than to other things. What's your favorite thing to do with your family, with your daughters? Well, I guess the favorite thing, well, I like to have dinner with them, um, but I also do like to travel to places with them, show them new things. Uh, when we go to China, they show me new things, <laughs> you know, because they, they speak perfectly the language. Um, but no. One of my daughters had her birthday in Moscow and Venice and Vienna. She wants to have her birthday in different places. Well, it's nice. great fun. We do. Yeah. I've been to all those places, but I've never been there with a young girl, a young kid. Yeah. So I always see new things because they see new things. Yeah, you see it through their eyes and it's different. Yes, yes, yes. Walk around any city, any country with a young child. Is, is an eye-opening experience. You've done so many different things in your life. What's next? Well, it really, you asked me, the focus is my daughters. Um, I never wanted to have children, Malaga. I thought children were a horrible, useless waste of time and energy and money. <laughs> I felt so sorry for my friends who had children. You've ruined your lives. What's wrong with you? Well, it turns out I was totally wrong. These little girls are fantastic for me. And if it, everybody should do it, uh, should not miss what it will teach you and, and how much fun it is. So I came to fatherhood late. And it's good that I came late because if I'd done it earlier, <laughs> it would have been bad for the mother, for the children, for me. It would have been bad for everybody. But by the time I did it, I had a lot of things out of my system. And it's been a Fabulous experience, um, and 
I try to spend as much time and effort on them uh, as I can. Now, part of the problem is, of course, they're getting older. And you're not quite as interested in their father as they <laughs> might have been when they were nine or something like that. But uh, I'm still, I am still as interested in them, if not more so, than I was when they were nine. How old are they now? One is 19. She's a freshman in university, and one is 14, and she is in what would be the eighth grade in the U.S. That's right. Okay, great. And Jim, this podcast is called Out of Office. What's your favorite thing to do when you're not in the office? My daughters, if I can, if they'll have anything to do with me. Um, yeah, whatever they want to do, that's what I'm, I'm keen to do. The, the problem, uh, anybody who has teenage children will understand this, they're not so keen to do things with me as I am to, uh, to do things with them. I hear you. I have a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old, so I, I understand. <laughs> well, you certainly understand. As I say, anybody with teenagers will certainly understand. And I remember, you know, when I was a teenager, I guess I was that way too. Nothing was more embarrassing than my parents. You know, if they showed up somewhere I was, oh my gosh, how hopeless, etc. We we forget that, right? We forget that bit. Well, I was there once too. That's I, right. I can remember thinking how foolish my parents were. And I can remember a few years later thinking, boy, they've changed. They've learned a lot. You know, they, they've learned a great deal in the last 10 or 15 years. I can remember when they were hopeless, hopeless people. Now they're not so dumb after all. So maybe there's hope for us and maybe our kids will say that about us one day. I hope that my children someday think that I've learned a lot and it's gotten better. Jim Rogers, thank you for spending some time with me. I really appreciate you being on Out of Office. Thank you. It's my pleasure, Malika. Let's do it again sometime. That was my conversation with Jim Rogers. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did recording it. Remember, you can check out more episodes of Out of Office. We are on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, the Bloomberg website, and of course, the Bloomberg Terminal. This episode was produced by Yang Yang. I'm Malika Kapoor. Until next time, stay well. I'll see you in two weeks. Join us on demand at the Bloomberg Asia Wealth Summit on August 4th to hear from leading investors, economists, and money managers as they bring actionable intelligence to private investors and family offices. At this event, we'll unravel the complexity and unearth where the opportunities for wealth creation lie. Founding sponsor, HSBC. Register now to watch on demand at BloombergLive.com slash AsiaWealth slash radio. That's BloombergLive.com slash AsiaWealth slash radio. 